Let's have a word of prayer again. Father, I appreciate what my brother Rick said this morning. Um, my thoughts have been there uh, pretty much right on that same topic this morning. And as we delve into this passage here in front of us in John 8, um, I mean, I, I feel like we could camp here for a year and still not get everything out of it. And, uh, and, and you know, what I feel in my heart, what I, what I think in my mind is so many thoughts uh, of how this connects with so much of the rest of Scripture and the grand plan of salvation. And yet we, we, can, we can only eat so much. We only have so much capacity at any given time. Um, and I, I just really been thinking, in, in keeping with what Rick said this morning, uh, that, that we've just been reading what uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians about uh, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We, we are those, those, those little jars of clay that were used for common household waste. That's really kind of what he has in mind there, Lord. And just, we would say today, a, a plastic garbage bag. And uh, um, the value of this message is not in the container. And so as we, as I stand up here in all, all my sin and my pride and, and in my unworthiness, I thank you that the excellency of the power is not in what I can say or do uh, or how eloquent I am, or, or how uh, adept I am in bringing together all of these different points and these details and things, but really is in your Holy Spirit and in your ability to take uh, our feeble attempts and to to work it out into our lives, like that, uh, like the Potter, like uh, we're talking about this morning, working working out those weaknesses, those those frailties, uh, if they don't get the air bubbles out, then it explodes in the, in the fire. Uh, and so we thank you that you are working in us uh, to make us more of what we, what we already are um, in heaven and, and to be more like what you want us to be. We are, we are moving from the old Adam to the new one. And we thank you for that. It is all your glory. It is none of us. It is all your grace. We give you the glory. Ask that, that in these uh, few minutes that you would, would, would bring home to us the truth of this passage and what, what, the, what the Lord Jesus is saying here. And we pray this in, in his name. Amen. Uh, it's a good, good opening this morning, Rick. I was thinking a lot, as I said in the prayer, I was thinking a lot of all these same lines. And it occurred to me this morning um, <clears throat> that when you... When you give yourself, when you, when, when you try to get the glory for yourself, that's stealing. Because the glory belongs to God. But when he gives it to you, that's grace. Right? And you can own that, and that's legit. Right? But when we try to take the glory like you're talking about this morning, you know, instead of giving him the glory, um, that's stealing. And, and, and it's not just because his feelings are hurt or something. It's a legitimate problem. I mean, it's, it's legitimate stealing. It really belongs to him. Um, good, good opening this morning. Thank you. Um, it's a lot to be said about this. And um, we live in a world of, of uh, darkness. We live in a world of deceit and deception, which is what darkness pictures. 
often in scripture. Sometimes darkness in scripture uh, is is also a, a it's one of the symbols of God's judgment, right? We saw this with that very, very profound and helpful message series from John on on the comedy of the cross. Remember that? Comedy of the cross. And, and it was so profound to me you know, that, that Satan and all his forces in the world, that, that these Jewish leaders, you know, that we've been looking at, and, and many of the crowd, even the Romans, uh, had their fun with Jesus and making fun of him and laughing at him. And then at the noon hour comes three hours of darkness when it's the Father's turn. And that, that darkness pictures his wrath. That's one of the one of the one of the um, symbols in the Bible of God's judgment. Another one is fire as well. Uh, I can't really find fire in, in the crucifixion there, but darkness is definitely there. And so is also shaking. That's another one uh, where you'll read. And I've thought about this with coronavirus, particularly some of those passages in scripture where he says, you know, I will yet once more shake not only the earth, but the heavens as well. The powers of the heavens will be shaken, right? And, and so um, uh, <laughs> what a vivid reminder. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake. I have. We've had a few little you know, tremors around here, but I've been in a bona fide earthquake um, that's lasting long enough to realize what's going on. Uh, it's a very, very helpless feeling. Because you, <laughs> yeah, you can't go anywhere, anywhere. You, you, you go out of the building into the, into a field, you know, and the, the ground is shaking there. And you can, you've seen videos of some oh, of the yeah. Japanese, you know, sidewalks are opening up and the ground is opening up, water's coming through. I mean, it's if it shakes long enough, it really reminds us of just how <laughs> what we think is so solid you know even our constitution and our rights as american citizens uh, god is able to take that and shake it a little bit and remind you and me if we're paying attention that we don't want to take uh, to put our full trust in that right i have a i have a really good quote that i'll, I'll quote uh, i'll read to us it's from um uh from adam uh, just a, a little update recently, maybe some of you saw it in the email where he talks about that very thing, trusting in uh, the world leaders. I'll say that at the service this morning. It's really, really good. Debbie, end up. Oh, I just was going to say, <clears throat> when we lived in Minnesota, we had a farm in Minnesota. I was thinking of, you know, elementary school age, tornadoes, you know, because there was no mountains there, and we could hear the sirens coming from the town, and we lived on a farm, and the tornado sirens would go off in America. Dad would wake us all up and take us down to this little root cellar down from the bottom of the farmhouse. But I mean, it turned like a greenish yellow outside. Yeah. You could see the, the you could see the black clouds kind of going, you know, making their, their circular motions and stuff. It was creepy, you know. So I mean, yeah, weather can be a little intimidating, that's for sure. And there's nothing you can do but be underneath in the root cellar, hoping that your house is not going to blow up. Yeah, it's scary. That's intimidating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thunder, lightning, same thing too. You know. All right. Um, but anyway, darkness, darkness um, in scripture is a a. It's one of those icons of God's judgment. Okay. In fact, uh, the eternal. Uh, state one of one of the descriptions of hell is outer darkness. Okay, um, 
and people, you know, we, we, we wonder, you know, well, how can you have a lake of fire that's dark, right? Well, these are, these are metaphors, descriptions. The reality will be far worse. Who knows what the physics of hell will be like, but it's not like our experience now, I can tell you that. But it's, it's not just, I, you know, Jesus says, uh, beware of him who destroys both body and soul in hell. And I think that, that that darkness is not just physical darkness that people will experience, but especially spiritual. We will be utterly alone, and, uh, in, my, in my opinion. But anyway, so darkness in this, uh, in Scripture, number one, can be um, a picture of, and is often used as a picture of God's judgment. But it is also probably more frequently, particularly in the book of John, <clears throat> is a metaphor of deception, right? And we can understand that. We'll really see this, and we'll probably camp on this more when we get to chapter 9, because that's when he heals the man born blind. The man was born in darkness, physically, never seen in his life, okay? And Jesus takes him out of that darkness into physical light. But more importantly, his heart, you can, it's amazing to watch the progression of that man from the beginning where he's quizzed about who's Jesus and he's like, I, I, I don't know. He goes, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. And he goes from that to worshiping and to see the progression. You can literally see the Holy Spirit opening his mm -hmm. eyes. It's amazing to see. Um, so what an apt metaphor that is. So when we read this, you know, the light, I, I try to be, you know, open to uh, not imposing what I think it is on Scripture, right? It's always important. But it's, it's very, very clear. And as I study it, you know, I'm very, very comfortable in the interpretation here where he says, I am the light of the world. What he's doing is he is contrasting himself as the source of truth in a world of deception. Okay. And, um, and of course, you know, we've, we've been studying the Feast of Tabernacles, and you remember that one of the, the two main sort of national icons traditions that they had was the lighting of the the huge candelabras in the court of the women uh, every night as the sun was setting every day of that feast they would light these things and uh, John tells us as we saw last time there in verse 20 I think it is um, that that this Jesus made that statement in that courtyard where those candelabras are hard to miss the imagery there isn't it <laughs> okay um, and so what a picture that is, you know, and especially in a time when they didn't have electric lights, you know, today we have, you know, we have all these electric lights everywhere and you, and you have what they call the light pollution, you know, where you only see three stars at night, you know, well, I don't know what Abraham had trouble with counting. I mean, you know, there they are, you know, <laughs> well, Abraham lived at a time when he could see the whole Milky Way and everything, right. And, and see those stars in their, in their glory. Um, but at that time, Jerusalem would be up on the hill. It would be a few little small, tiny little lights somewhere. But that, that light at the temple at night during that feast really made a profound impact on people because there was a lot of uh, extra biblical writing about it. Okay? And, and some, of, some of the writers said things like there was no courtyard in Jerusalem that was not touched by the light coming from that temple mount during that feast. Right? What a beautiful picture that is of the Lord Jesus. In the, in the sea of darkness, the countryside, way far away, even as you're coming to Jerusalem, you can see that sparkling diamond up there at the temple, right? 
what a contrast he is with the world around him. I'm reminded of that, uh, one of my favorite quotes from Malcolm Muggeridge. He said, um, the more I see the saviors of men, the more beautiful the Lamb of God looks to me. Amen. Right? <laughs> the more we see, the more we see in the darkness around us, and our society is getting darker. And, um, and that is a that is a that deception, that increase in deception is a sign of God's judgment. Okay, it is. Um, but the the darker it is in the world around us, we shouldn't get discouraged because it's more clear that that we can shine the light. Jesus said, and just in passing too, he says, not only did he say, I am the light of the world, but he later tells his disciples, or actually earlier, I think, uh, and not John's gospel, the other gospels, he says, you are the light of the world as well. Right? Nobody lights a lamp and puts it under, you know, you can't hide a city on a hill, right? So also our testimony shines. That's, that's kind of humbling. That's kind of humbling. Okay. All right. So big picture again, this is uh, the fall of the year in the spring. He's going to be crucified, right? Um, Feast of Tabernacles is happening. Uh, we've been through chapter seven. We've seen sort of a synopsis of, in chapter seven of some things that Jesus has been saying throughout the feast. Remember, he hadn't been there for the entire feast. It says he came about halfway through the feast and he came separately, but he did come. He went to the temple as was his custom. When he went to Jerusalem, or went to the uh, Judean area and would be near Jerusalem, he pretty much made a beeline all the time for the temple. That's that's pretty much, you know, if Jesus was in town, you could pretty well find him in the temple. And, and at night he would leave and maybe go to a house like he did uh, where he was talking to Nicodemus, right? And make him a house, that type of thing. He had a place to sleep. But um, he was at the temple. And, and so he came there and he was teaching. Chapter 7 gives us uh, a lot of... Um, audience reaction, right? And what we're seeing in chapter seven is this idea that that Jesus is very polarizing. More and more people uh, are becoming vocal of either for him or against him, or there's a, there's a number of folks that are still trying to work it out. Well, in chapter eight, John kind of goes back again. It's not it's not a linear progression. What, what, what he's doing is he's kind of giving us an overview of Jesus and the reactions of the nation to him in chapter 7, the things that were happening. But then he goes back and he folds, as it were, chapter 8 over on top of chapter 7. And he gives us this confrontation that he has with the Jews. And this is the equivalent of Matthew 23. Okay, Matthew 23 is the, are the woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, right? right? And he just like, you know, takes out the proverbial... Gatling gun fires it up, and 50 cal, right? I mean, that's Matthew's equivalent. This is John's equivalent. We get into chapter eight. It's Jesus opens up. Um, now, what's interesting to me is that as this chapter progresses, he's a little kind. It's almost like he's a little reluctant to tell them this, and I think there's a good reason for that, which we'll get into here in a minute. But he does, as the light of the world objectively turn the light on and wit here's the point now witness against them as the witness from the father from heaven he witnesses against them and, and passes a judgment against them which is interesting because they haven't really 
let me put it this way. He's not, he's not doing this as the judge. He's doing this as the witness. Okay, And that's what we will see here in this passage. Because what's happening here in these verses is that the before the witness can witness in the rest of this chapter, the veracity or the uh, integrity or the trustworthiness of that witness has to be established first. Does that make sense? Why should we listen to you, Jesus? What right do you have to come and tell? What, why should we believe anything you're telling us? Okay. So before he goes and he kind of opens up both barrels on them, he's got to establish that what he is saying to them is, in fact, the truth from God. Okay. And that's the point of this passage right here. And that's really kind of what he means when he says here, I'm the light of the world. Not, he's, he's going to specifically apply that light to them and to their system and where its true origins are from, okay? Despite what they thought. They thought they were from God and Abraham, and he's going to tell them otherwise, okay? Um, but that light more generally is also for the whole world. And that's kind of what we looked at last time. We just focused on point number one in our outline there, which is I am the light of the world, right? And we read from those passages um, you, you know, there's there's sort of you know we in our 2,000 year removed Western culture, we look at that and we can kind of we can glean a lot from it and we did right we looked at that and we and I asked for some some dialogue and 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 you guys offered some some really good ideas and and not to discredit any of that okay all of that is true and we can understand that he is the he's a source of truth in a dark world like I said a second ago and in our culture today and all of that kind of stuff. But what is especially important, and this is a really, really important Bible study principle, when you study the Bible, you need to remember who it is that's speaking and to whom they are speaking, right? That's extremely important. Because while all of those other things that we've been saying and that even I've been saying here at the beginning are true and they're truths that flow out of this, let's, when we back up, who's speaking here? Jesus, right? Who's he speaking to? The Jewish leaders. These were the guys schooled in the scriptures, okay? And that's why we spent time last time, which I won't do again, um, but you have that quote right at the top there from Isaiah uh, 49, 6, right? Uh, this is a good, as good a summary of those Old Testament passages that he is really kind of referring to, referring to when he makes that statement, I am the light of the world, this is really what they are hearing, okay? Would be passages like this one here in Isaiah 49, 6, which is at the top of your notes. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, okay? This is, this is uh, Jehovah God, Yahweh speaking. This is really God the Father speaking to his servant, the servant of Yahweh, okay, which is which is Jesus, of course. Um, so he, what he's saying is, it's not, it's not just enough that you will be the savior of the nation. Okay? Look at the rest of it. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What a great passage, isn't it? That's the equivalent of Isaiah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. So when he when he says when he stands up and he says to these religious leaders, "I am the light of the world," 
what he is doing is saying, I am that one that is prophesied in the Old Testament as being the light to the nations. And by extension, of course, as you see in that verse right there, not only not only that in, a, in a, like a really broad, broad sense, but also specifically the Savior for Israel too. Okay, so he is he is what he's to be as clear as I know how to make it. What they are hearing him say is, "I am the Messiah. I am the light of the world. I am the light for the nations." I am the Savior you've been looking for. Okay, which makes what they're going to say to him in chapter 10, right there at the very end, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? Tell us plainly where they're not sure the Messiah, all that much more ridiculous. That's the mark of unbelief, by the way. When you are when you are given repeatedly, time and time again, clear indications of what the truth is, and you keep coming back with, huh, what? What are we trying to tell me? What? And with more questions, which are really just objections, disguised as questions, right? I am the light of the world. So not only is this a, a tetra, uh, uh, one of this is the the second of the seven mountain peaks, right? Of all those I am statements, there's a lot of I am statements in John, but there's the seven metaphors which are very hard to miss, right? I'm the light of the world. I am the bread from heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. You are the branches, right? All of those I am metaphors. Um, <clears throat> this is the second one, and of course they all, and we looked at this in great detail before, it is a, it is a reference to the Tetragrammaton, which is a fancy way of saying the name of God. It was a, an acronym uh, that came out of Exodus 3.14. When, when God commissioned Moses, and he says, Moses says, well, who shall I say sent me? God says, in other words, what's your name? God says, I am what I am. God gives himself a name. And the Jews shrunk that down. We have acronyms. We call it an acronym today, right? And they basically turned that into what we would call an acronym, Yahweh, or sometimes it, the anglicized version based on what you see in the way it's written in Latin. It's Jehovah. Jehovah and Yahweh. Yahweh is the Hebrew. Jehovah is the Latin way of saying it. That's the same thing, okay? So it's, a, it's an acronym, or what they call a tetragrammaton, and so when Jesus says, I am, that's what he's referring to. Okay? So he's making a claim not only to be Messiah, but also to be deity, to be the covenant-making God who appeared before Moses in the burning bush, who also appeared to Abraham and made covenants with him, right? The smoking pot and the burning, the, the ointment and all that, the burning, smoking torch and burning pot, right? Remember that? Hey, anyway. Boy, there's a lot there. So I don't want us to miss that. All right, so let's move on, though, and let's read. Um, <clears throat> I've been doing a lot of talking here, so let's have somebody. Why don't we just have somebody read this, this whole text for us, okay? Uh, 12 through 20. Anybody, go ahead. Jesus closed to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to light. The Pharisees replied, You are making those claims about yourself. 
such testimony is not valid. Jesus told them, these claims are valid even though I make them about myself. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you don't know this about me. You judge me by human standards. But I do not judge anyone. And if I did, my judgment would be correct in every respect because I am not <clears throat> The Father who sent me is with me. Your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. I am one witness, and my Father who sent me is the other. Where is your Father? They asked. Jesus answered, Since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my Father is. If you knew me, you would also know my Father. Jesus made these statements while he was teaching in the, in the section of the temple known as the treasury, but he was not arrested because his time had not yet come. Mm. It's a good translation. I like the force of that. I think we're pretty much spot on here. All right. So we've, we've looked at... Uh, uh, the first verse here, verse 12, right? I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You remember last time we also talked about um, <laughs> the unmistakable, of course, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, right? And that lighting ceremony pictured the light uh, of God who that led the Israelites out of Egypt, right? The whole point of the Feast of Tabernacles is to celebrate that deliverance of the ancestors of them, their ancestors, out of bondage to Egypt to the Promised Land, right? Their, their whole deliverance from that. And of course, that's an even larger metaphor of the ultimate deliverance and salvation that, that, that all believers will celebrate. I think, by the way, Feast of Tabernacles, as I, I said to you, is in a sense timeless, even though it looks back at that event. It really is foreshadowing and picturing the ultimate uh, celebration where we will live with God in the New Jerusalem. All right. So, um, and there's greenery involved with that and water and all of that. Okay. So, and light. All right. So, um, but he's standing there and he's saying this. And when he says this, okay, that, that, he, is, that he is God, he is the Messiah. And they're, and they're in the presence. It doesn't say what time it was. Maybe they were lighting those lamps. Maybe they were extinguishing them as the day was dawning. We don't know. Maybe they were already lit. He's saying that in the, it was not a, it was very common at, when those were lit. Of course, they would light up, you know, it's lighting up pretty much all Jerusalem. It's definitely going to be a lot of light there in the, in the courtyard itself. And they would have a lot of feasting there. They would have uh, uh Performers, jugglers, music, things going on. It's almost like a, a carnival atmosphere. So maybe it's in that context he said. We don't know. Okay. But the point is, it's hard to mistake his point here. Is just like God led your ancestors out of slavery to Egypt to the promised land, so also anyone who follows me now will be led out of the darkness of slavery to sin to freedom, right, to the kingdom of God, to the truth of God, right, all of those things. God is in the process of helping us, uh, not helping us, but of, of, of moving us 
from this state in which we are born to being born again and, and a totally different state. We've moved from, we're going to see this uh, particularly in, in chapter uh, 11, where Jesus makes another one of those great I am statements, I am the resurrection and the life. And when he says that, what he's, what he's literally saying in the Greek is, the one who believes in me has moved from death permanently to life. There's never going back to a state of death again. Yeah, it's powerful, powerful, powerful statement. It's right in the center of the John of the Gospel of John. Only God can say that. <laughs> only God can say that, and only God can have the force of, of meaning and, and you know and the power behind it, um, not just in the words, but in, in in the actual power to bring it to pass. Um, and all right, so. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life, right? Just like your ancestors followed, followed me, <laughs> really, uh, out, out of Egypt. So also you can follow me out of the world. Isn't that good? Yeah. You know, you look around, you see all the garbage going on in the world, you know, and the politics and the corruption and the, 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 the absurdity. I mean, wish I could had time to tell you all the silly things that I see in my email, you know, because I have a, I have a NOAA, a government email address, and they, <laughs> and, and you know, all this stuff, you know, and the latest, this latest little workshop on, on unconscious bias and um, unconscious bias and microaggressions, you know, this type of thing, and they just go on, and they, they have this whole little office there in D.C., and I guess that they have nothing better to do than to put nonsense like together. They had like nine listening sessions on, you know, after the the riots uh, over the summer. Um, you know, about everybody's feelings getting hurt because they, they feel like, you know, I didn't spend all the time to attend any of that stuff. But I, I look at that, and I, it's one sense in which I want to have the reaction Rick just did. I'm like, you know, <laughs> I, I want to just, I want to tell them what I think, you know, and get fired and whatever. But we're being let out of the world. It's okay. It's in darkness. God, God's, we're leaving the darkness. And make because we deserve it. It's all grace. Right? Oh, my, this morning on my my Facebook thing, Jim Gantz sent me something real dumb yesterday. She was like, "Oh, Trump, he's our president. Let's not give up." Da, 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 da. Just yeah, pray for the man that's in there now because now it is God's will for him to be there. If he is giving up, God will allow it. So let's just let's just. Get behind the people that are fighting for God. <laughs> <laughs> this world and its desires are passing away. Read your Bible. Wait till you read what I or hear what I what um, what I read this morning. But Adam, it's it's really really just emails it. He's a good man. Yep. All right. So let's move on in our text. Um, trying to trying to keep us on track and. Okay, so um, look at verse 13 then, and this is probably where we'll stop today. That's point number two in our outline. The Pharisees try again to discredit him, is what I'm saying. <clears throat> and the word again there is not an accident, okay? Uh, how many times did they try to cast Jesus in his words? I mean, you know, I think we're going to probably see that as we, as we walk through Mark, right? Uh, over and over and over again. And, and there's a lot of examples in the other Gospels, too, and they've tried to do it here as well in in John. Uh, John 5, I think, was kind of where they tried to first corner him. It was not a, a well-formed uh, attempt, 
but here, and, and, uh, and remember in the opening, I'm saying to you too, this is another interesting insight, I think, is that, um, you know, we, we're always poo-pooing these guys because they're, they're being blasted by Jesus constantly. But they were smart. These were not stupid people. Okay? Uh, they were, I mean, they were the ones that you would probably be much more inclined to put on the board of your corporation or to make the president of your college than out of the 12 disciples that Jesus had. They were graduates of Ivy League schools. Yeah. Like that. These were the trained dudes. I mean, and they knew the scriptures. Mm -hmm. They really they were probably better than we do. Oh, yeah. They probably knew the scriptures better than we do. Oh, yeah, certain Old Testament scriptures. I mean, oh. Nicodemus would run, run circles law. around us. I mean, they studied a lot. That's oh, that was their whole. Yeah. yeah. I was just saying that the disciples were just common, good common men. You know? They work hard to get money. And they didn't half listen. You know, Rick was talking this morning about your mind wandering. Okay. One of, one of the signs of, I'm not belittling you, okay, because we all struggle with that, okay. Um, but one of, one of the signs, one of the signs of mental strength is being able to listen an extended period of time. That's a smart of maturity. Children can't listen to save their lives, right? As you get older as an adult, it's supposed to get better. <laughs> well, the disciples, <laughs> the disciples just don't listen, right? And Jesus expresses frustration to them many times. Uh, oh, you. Foolish, what is this, little faith, slow heart to believe, right? That kind of, all this, you know, um, I think he says it actually to the, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, but he says it to them too. Um, uh, anyway, so, but these guys, these Jewish leaders are really paying attention. Probably a lot more, I think, I think a case, a strong case we made, that they, that they listen a lot more closely to what Jesus says than his own disciples do. Why? Not so that they can believe and soak it in, but so they can catch him in his words and trap him. But what's interesting is, in an ironic way, God sort of uh, uh, increases um, the pressure on them. Really, they're going to have a lot more to answer for because they're really carefully listening so they can trap him. Okay, but they are listening and they're getting the truth, even though they don't want to believe it. Okay, and so this really even... When you first look at it, it doesn't, you know, you sort of, I don't know, whatever. But no, this is really a masterful attempt on their part to trap him, okay? And we dealt with this just briefly, and that's that last paragraph up there uh, where I focus a little bit more on this. Is Jesus caught in a contradiction here, okay? Because, uh, again, smart guys, right? Because they were there. They remember this conversation. Jesus has already brought this up again in Chapter 7. When you go back to Chapter 5, you remember Jesus healed the man who was who was lame for 38 years, right? He did it on the Sabbath. He told him to pick up his campsite. It's not, it's not a little roll. It was a campsite. The man had been there for 38 years, okay? It's not a little bed roll. It's a campsite. You get the picture? It's a lot. He's carrying much more than he should be carrying and traveling further because he has told him to go home, traveling further than he's supposed to travel on a, on a Sabbath. And Jesus specifically did this to poke his finger in the eye of their Sabbath traditions, all right, and to force a confrontation with them. That's all in chapter 5, okay? 
when you go read that again, um, you will see. In fact, let's 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 go uh, look back up at that paragraph there. Okay, about halfway through, um, the text. This text is one of the places where we see where we see an example of how they took him seriously. Okay. An astute reader of John might remember, as the Jews did, that Jesus had told them back in chapter 5, verse 31. That's quoted right there. Do you remember what Jesus told them there? Chapter 5. Now, we can't even remember, and it wasn't, it wasn't as long ago as these guys. They had a good memory because they remembered this. Okay? If I bear witness in myself, my witness is not true or valid. I think Larry's translation says valid there, right? That your witness, because here in this verse, they say effectively, you're testifying about yourself and, you're, and, you're, and you're, your witness is not valid. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo, right? We caught you. Some Bibles like mine, I think the New King James and this one is ESV. They both say your testimony is not true, right? But the better rendering is what Larry says valid okay what they're doing here is they're not questioning the truthfulness of his statement what they're saying is when you stand up and say i am the light of the world and anyone who follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life that's not admissible evidence you can't be you can't bring that to the courtroom of god's justice as valid you hear that that's what they're saying to him and it's an echo of what Jesus had said to them a year plus earlier in chapter 5. All right, so that's the point of what I'm trying to make in that paragraph right there. And that's really important because what they're doing is they're setting the stage by questioning him and trying to trap him. What they're actually doing in God's providence is unwittingly setting the stage for him to explain his veracity and to, to set himself up as the witness who deserves to be heard because he's going to tell them the truth. And not only is he a witness of it, but his father is the second collaborating witness that their combined testimony together is proof positive that the accusation is true and they stand condemned. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Wow, that's clever, isn't it? Mm -hmm. These guys are really smart, okay? Don't think of them as dummies. They are really smart. They remember this from before. They paid attention, and that's another mark of intelligence is not, not only that you can sustain attention for a while, but thus you also can remember the details of it later, right? Memory recall is, is another part of it, a critical part of intelligence. <laughs> the disciples had to be told over and over and over again. P Peter writes, no trouble for me to write these things to you. Why does he say that? Because he had that problem too. <laughs> he couldn't remember things, you know. Should, once should be enough, Peter. Right? No. Lord kept saying. John, same thing. John, John, you notice that not so much in this gospel. Yes, he's, he comes back to a lot of key points over and over. In our in our Bible study, we're studying. Uh, uh, we just started uh, First John, the epistles, and and John, I believe, there's too much. Uh, <clears throat> pointed this out, and I thought it was a good point that Paul, Paul is very linear, right? You, you read Romans, and he goes from point, 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 premise, premise, 
argument conclusion, right? He's, he's very linear. John and Peter, to some degree, also, they kind of go like this. They're making the same point over and over again. They keep coming back around to the same point. They'll say something else, and they keep coming back to the same point. James kind of does that, too. We just got through reading uh, James, um, which is not... It's not, a, it's not untypical for the way that they taught at that time either. You read Proverbs. Proverbs seems to come back to the same basic principles again and again and again. It is a great way of teaching and learning. Um, but I think in, in their case, they needed to be told over and over again because they weren't listening halfway the first time, and then they forgot the rest of what they did here. You know what I'm saying? You got half of it first time, then you forgot that 25% of the that 50% you got the first time says, Okay, it's so now time to go back and review the 75% plus let's, let's drive home the 20, you know. <laughs> no wonder Jesus got a little frustrated. But here these guys, the Jews, are trying to trap him in his own words. And they remembered what he said. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind at all. Because, because, again, Jesus has revisited that with them already in chapter 7, where he says, do not judge by appearances. And we'll go back and we'll look at that in our, in our, in our responses. And Jesus responds back to them. We'll go back and revisit that. Do you think that um, they had, because back in verse 7, or in chapter 7, they had said, uh, the temple officers and so forth, they had said, but no one has spoken like this before. Like, no one speaks like this. So possibly were there like other false prophets previous to that um, who just kind of were you know, blowing smoke, and it didn't take much for the Pharisees to actually <laughs> totally discredit them, you know, because it didn't take much, it doesn't take much a lot of times for people to get followers to say stuff, you know, and then, and then you get this little group that's behind you, and so the Pharisees are like, hmm, I guess we got to break up another one, you know, let's break up another one of these, here comes another guy that's like professing to be whatever, and so we're going to break it up, break it up, break it up. And then all of a sudden, the temple officers are like, okay, now wait a minute. This man is claiming to be, you know, before he was claiming to be uh, the uh, living water and so forth. You know, I mean, he's, he's proclaiming to be all these different things. And then, and then they're like, no one ever spoke like this man before. So... Maybe that's why in Jesus. So now all of a sudden they're they're listening, but all of a sudden they're like really listening. Okay, wait a minute. No one is speaking like this man ever has before. He's not blowing smoke. There's something going on. Let's get serious, you know. And that could be what also I don't know. Just a thought came to my mind that Nicodemus actually, you know, came to him and goes, "Now wait a minute. You know, maybe Nicodemus noticed before all these other people did that." He's not speaking like anybody I've ever heard before either, you know. So, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Well, that's a really, really good point. Because they definitely considered themselves to be the watchmen on the wall. Which would be one of the old, again, one of the Old Testament illustrations. Okay. And that's actually going to, Jesus is actually going to confront them about that in chapter 10. When he says, I am the good shepherd. Okay. The blindness of the Pharisees, of these watchmen. Imagine, <clears throat> imagine you got a walled city, right? You live at that time. We don't have walls around our cities today because you know you get planes and stuff that fly over. It's no point, right? So, but then you did, and imagine it's your job to be a watchman on the wall at whatever hour of the day to look for threats that are coming, 
And the one thing you need most, you don't have the ability to see. Right? So if they're blind watchmen on the wall, that's one illustration. The other illustration is the shepherds. So they thought of themselves as, as the wise shepherds who were there to protect the flock from external threats, right? You're exactly right. Okay. Uh, and, and and Jesus, he doesn't he there's a minor and a major illustration. The minor illustration is the is the blindness of the, the man who now can see that points out their blindness. Okay. But then it, it he goes into chapter 10 and he talks about I am the good shepherd and he contrasts himself with the bad shepherds, right? Who are falling down on the job. They're only hirelings and they run when they see the wolf coming. But I'm the good shepherd who puts his life in front of the danger to protect the sheep and gives his life for the sheep. Right? Yeah, yeah that's a that's a that's a you're 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 very much, I think, right on target there. And they did have to and they did. They they were in a sense self-appointed watchmen to, to protect Israel, right? Well you know if you look back reading through the old testament, Moses was just like that. And I think that's was the original intent. Because Moses oftentimes would intercede because the Lord would come and say, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to destroy the people. And Moses would say, Hey, let's think about this. The Egyptians, <laughs> do you brought your people out of Egypt? If you destroyed these people, what's the Egyptians going to say? What's the rest of the world going to say? So Moses was all the time mediating. For the people, and that's probably the original intent. Just like today, we're called priests over in the book of Hebrews, and and we're supposed to we we pray for people. We go before God for people who are not able to go before God because of their position, because of their sin, and things like that. And I think these these people here. Have lost focus of that. They were not. They were not going before God for <clears throat> people. They were going there for themselves. They had become selfish. Mm-hmm. So the original intent, I can see. I can see what Erica, Erica says. That they were. They were supposed to be the mediators. I mean, that's. They were supposed to be both. They were supposed to protect the nation from from doctrinal error and things. Um, <clears throat> but they were also supposed to proclaim the truth of God and help the, the people understand the scriptures, right? Yeah. Uh, and they had failed on both counts, which is interesting, and I'm glad to bring this up because I, I was looking for, you know, I always like to kind of wrap up with, with application to us. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, but then he tells his disciples, like I said, also, you also, you're the light of the world. And, and, and so thank you, Larry, for saying that because as part of us fulfilling this, just like Jesus did, part of that is intercession, right? And, and we have that right as priests, as it were. Remember, remember a priest is one of stands with back to the people facing God to intercede for the people to God. The prophet is the other way around. The prophet has his back to God to proclaim God's truth to the people, right? And Jesus was both our prophet and our priest. But there's a sense in which we follow in his footsteps in both functions ourselves too, right? So not only do we intercede for people who walk in darkness and, and, and like your sisters or whoever, right? 
you know, these people that are on your heart to pray for. But we also function in that prophet role too, where where you represent the truth in a dark world. There's a lot of people, Kim, okay, she's a sister of the Lord, but you know, if she is off base, you can be that prophet to her to say, gently come back to what really matters here. Romans 13. He is there by God's appointment. You are to pray for him. Whether you like it or not, God is bigger than the circumstances, Kim, right? But that's truth. That's you shining the light in a dark world. Yes, it's conservative you know, news and all that kind of stuff. And maybe maybe you, you have your own affinity toward that too. But, but really, the truth of God is what trumps all of that. Pardon the pun. Okay, right? The word of God. Trump is not the lie of the world. Jesus is the lie of the world, Kim. Okay? And you can be little L light of the world by reflecting that truth, just like the moon reflects the light of the sun. We can reflect the light, but we have to be in the word ourselves, right? And we have to be so saturated with it. So it's not just our opinion. It's the truth of God. You know, uh, I was thinking about the whole podcast. I listened to John MacArthur the other day, and he said at least three times, he said, we need to pray for those that have been appointed in these positions. He's talking about Bible. He's talking about heritage. Okay, he said, God still loves these people. We still have to pray for them. And I was just like, wow. Yeah. He hit right in the head. And I'm like, you know, I hear it at work too. I got a good brother in the Lord, just the same way as Kim. He said, man, read, watch it, watch it. I don't want to watch that. I wouldn't watch that. When I do that, that gets my mind up. Yeah. And it's so easy to do. Because yeah. I have a small, infinite brain, you know. But it's, it, it, John was very right. We have to pray for him. I still pray for President Trump. Um, we are still kind of sometimes we're thinking maybe something might happen. I don't know. God's God's will, right? But in this right now, we still have to pray for these people that we consider evil because they have a heart, and it's, it can be a changeable heart. Only through way. God, only through Jesus, and only through His will. And so when He said that the other day, I was telling Eric too. I said, you know what? I never. I don't think I'll pray for this man. It's bad. That's my bad. We do need to pray for him. Because again, like David said, or maybe Larry, he, we know that he has been appointed. It wasn't my mistake. Okay. Even if, he, if it lasted, all that, whatever. He has been appointed at this point in time to be our president. Okay. So. Okay. As a point of application, you're exactly right, Rick. Maybe it's a good thing sometime this week for, for all of us. Go back to Romans 13, 1 through 7, and reread that slowly and prayerfully. And check your own heart to see if maybe we're a little disobedient in that area. Read through what? Romans 13, 1 oh, through Romans 7. Yeah. That's all authority. Any questions? That's not even, that's not talking about just the president. Yeah, that's talking about right. that's all authority. authority. Exactly right. That's what it's like. Yeah. That is what's wrong with this, this country today. Even that annoying boss at work. Yeah. Who can't can't find his butt with a treasure map. You know, because he's, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. All authority. Ouch. Okay. okay. This is
John has a John has a good response to that. He's there's a Q and A um, in the church where a lady stands up and asks that. He says uh, he said for himself, you you will have to work that out for yourself in your situation. Um, you know, he said, and I thought it was a good a good point he made. He said, you know, when I travel, because she was concerned about it for herself and for children, particularly. I think she's Filipino, and and or something like that. Anyway, so she travels frequently overseas, you know, to see family. And she's like, uh, you know, if they require this to go fly. He's like, when I when I jump on a plane, which does a lot of that, right? You jump on a plane, go somewhere, and they they constantly inject me with all these other stuff. I remember when I went to China, I mean, I had over like five or six shots of this, that, and the other. I don't know what they were, right? And he's like, okay, you know, it's just another for me. It's just another vaccine, you know, just another thing you got to do. So, and if it's not. I mean, we know the principle, right? It's pretty simple. If, if, unless they're telling you to do something that directly violates the word of God, either they're telling you to do something God says not to do, or they're telling you not to do something God tells you to do, like meeting regularly with brothers and sisters in Christ, submit. Submit. And you don't like the leader, okay, submit as unto the Lord, right? Wives, submit to husbands. As to the Lord, the guy's a louse. He's stupid. I'm a believer. You know, he won't. You don't submit to him because you, you know, you think he's until until you disagree with him or his personality. You know, Dad used to say. Anyway, never mind. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? It's as as to the Lord. When you submit and submit to the authority, you do as unto the Lord. Period. All right, we're past time. Father, thank you for for this and help us to be light in a dark world. Boys are dark. It's really getting dark out. But this is a, a good time. It's, I think of Daniel's prophecy about those who who lead others to righteousness will shine like the, the sun in the kingdom of their father. And we want to be found faithful. Paul says in uh, in um, his first Corinthians 4, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. We are stewards of your truth. Help us to shine the light faithfully and to not get it confused with our opinions. Because as soon as we do, in our pride, we start putting a shade on that lamp. So help us, and I speak to myself, like Rick said this morning, my toes are hurting too. Um, help us not to get in the way of what you want to say through us, the grace you want to impart to the hearers for edification all around us this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.